Today's scripture reading is John 5, 18 through 29. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, well, good morning, church. Uh, my name is uh, Reed. I serve as one of the pastors here uh, of Christ Community at the Olathe Campus. And if you're new, if you're a guest, uh, we say this every Sunday, but we are glad to have you with us. I'd love the chance to meet you, to say hi, to get to know you. So come find me at some point uh, in the service, after the service, maybe not during the sermon, but I'd love to meet you and talk with you. So, uh, but what I'd love to do is just pray for our time as we continue in worship together. And so let's take a moment to pray. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your Son, the one who has all power and authority, worthy of all glory. And Lord, while I recognize that there is a, a wide range of, of views and opinions and perspectives of who Jesus is in this room, Lord, I ask that you would, by the power of your Spirit, grant us the ability to see, to delight, to behold in the Lord Jesus. And so Lord, I know that there is nothing that I can do in and of myself to to create any sense of, of revelation of your truth. And so we ask that you would give us a dependency upon your spirit to hear from you and to know you. And so, Lord, what we, what we know not, would you teach us? What we see not, would you show us? When we, who, who we are not, would you make us uh, to be more conformed in the image of your son? It is in his name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I am, my wife Megan and I, we have four uh, kiddos, and um, one of the blessings of having uh, kids is that, as a pastor is that they get to be sermon illustrations for you from time to time. And so I'm inviting uh, one of my dear children to join me on stage. Would you please join, uh, welcome my youngest daughter here. Now, what I'd, I'd like to do is I'd like to introduce you to, uh, to Opal. Uh, Opal uh, turned seven in March, and uh, she's an only child, isn't that right? No. Oh. My name is Pearl. Pearl. Um, I'm turning nine this Friday. Oh, okay. And. I thought you were an only child. Are you not an only child? I have three. 
Um, siblings. Three siblings. Okay, I, I have bad intel. I don't know where this came from. Okay, well, what I do know about Pearl is that she attends a welding school for children. Uh, that is one interesting fact about her. Uh, she hates reading, um, and she spends most of her free time playing video games. Is that right? No. No, I got I, that wrong. My goodness. I, I go to Woodland. Woodland. Um, I love reading. And I've never even touched a video game. You've never touched a video game. Okay, okay. Okay, all right. So let's, let me try this one. Okay. Uh, I think Pearl plays the tuba. Uh, she doesn't care much for desserts. And you just got a new pet turtle named Carl. Is that right? No. Man. Um, you, you don't play the tuba. No, I play piano. Piano. Okay, close. Um, not really. Not really? <laughs> I love desserts. You do love desserts. I got a dog. A dog, not a turtle. Named Trip. Trip. I am way off. I like. I just. I, I think I, I thought I knew you, but I guess I don't. Okay. So so let me ask you a question, Pearl. When you are having yourself introduced to someone, would you rather you introduce yourself or somebody else introduce you? Me. Yeah, you would rather you introduce yourself because you want to be known correctly, right? Yes. You don't want some you know buffoon uh, introducing you who may not know exactly who you are. So now, w would you join me actually in thanking Pearl for being here on stage with us? Thank you, thank you, Pearl. Love you, sweetie. I'll take this. Now, obviously, j just for the record, I do know my daughter. That is Pearl. I love her, and she's wonderful. In in the same way, j just as Pearl said, she would much rather her introduce herself so that she's known correctly. In the same way, if we are to take seriously the, 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 the journey and the pursuit of knowing Jesus, of following Jesus, wh whether you're skeptical or not, or whether you're a faithful follower of Jesus or not, if we're to take seriously the pursuit of knowing Jesus, well, then we should ask the question, who does Jesus say that he is? Now, a very important question is, is one that Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And that is an important question, and a question that we all must ask, or uh, answer rather. But even more important than the question, who do you say that I am, is the question, who does Jesus say that he is? And, and this is the question I want us to kind of answer together and kind of explore together as we turn to our passage together in John chapter 5. Because here's the thing, everyone has an opinion about Jesus. Even if you don't have an opinion about Jesus... You have an opinion about Jesus. That itself is an opinion. And most people actually have a fairly positive association with who Jesus is until he starts to talk about and declare who he actually is. We, we all kind of like in general the idea of loving your enemies. That's a great kind of moral lesson. But the moment Jesus starts telling us who he is, that's when we part ways with him. And that's exactly what happens in John chapter 5. And so more important than the questions of the origins of the universe, more important than the questions of the end of time or the meaning of life or if the chiefs are going to be any good next year, all of these questions, as important as they may be, the most important question to ask is who does Jesus say that he is? And so again, as we turn to our text, it is important for us to ask the question, who do we say that he is? But if we want to know him rightly, follow him faithfully, and emulate his character fruitfully, then we are to answer the question, who does he say that he is? So if you have your Bibles, turn to John 5, whether paper or electronic, and in this section of scripture, we come to see Jesus introducing himself more fully, more definitively in who he says he is, the Son of God, the Father. 
Now, if you were with us last week, the story was Jesus healing uh, a man at the pool of Bethesda. And in this story, we begin to see the mounting tension and division between Jesus and the religious leaders, largely because Jesus is healing on the Sabbath, which was a big rabbinic no-no according to the religious leaders at this time. But things get even worse when we see what Jesus says next. Look with me at verses 17 and 18. Now, Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So it's as if Jesus is saying, oh, you don't like my views of the Sabbath? Well, uh, what, what would you say if I told you that your God is my dad? And so in this moment, Jesus is kind of increasing the tension between himself and the religious leaders. And up until this point in John's gospel, up until this point, we've basically had John telling us who Jesus is, either from his own words or from the words of others. It's at this juncture that Jesus begins to tell us who he says he is. And it's in this moment where he is more definitively declaring himself to be the son of God, not just a moral teacher, not just a prophet sent from God, but he is the son of God the Father on the same level of authority and worth and honor. And we see this in verse 19. Jesus makes it even clearer. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, so this is Jesus' kind of catchphrase. It's a way of saying like, hey, what I'm about to tell you is like really true. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. And so in these words, Jesus is describing himself and ascribing to himself the very qualities of the creator God, of Yahweh, of the God who is infinite, eternal, beyond our comprehension. When he says, for whatever the father does, the son does likewise, Jesus is saying that he is on the same level as God. And he makes this even clearer in, in the verses that follow in verses 29 through, or sorry, 21 through 23. Look with me there. So Jesus says, for as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. The father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. And so who does Jesus say that he is? I mean, again, if, if your view of Jesus up until this point is that he's a good moral teacher, he has good instruction for us, that there's a lot we can learn and benefit uh, to, to kind of conduct a civil society from Jesus, at this point, you cannot conclude that Jesus is a good moral teacher if he is making the claims that he is, in fact, God on the same level as God. And so who does Jesus say that he is? He is saying in unequivocal terms that he is on the same level of authority and glory as God himself. And this is where the religious leaders begin to fiercely oppose Jesus and where they begin to part ways with Jesus. And, and if we're honest, in our kind of modern context, this is where we as a culture tend to part ways with Jesus. Even Christians tend to part ways with Jesus, maybe not explicitly, but functionally. When he begins to portray himself, declare himself to be authoritative to such a degree that he tells us how we, can how we ought to live our lives. 
And so this is where I want to take this, this first century text and place it in our 21st century context, if you will. The idea of Jesus having complete authority over our lives does not fit in a you-do-you, follow-your-heart, be true to yourself, do what makes you happy kind of culture. It doesn't fit with how we have kind of been trained to think about the path to the good life, that I possess actually all power and authority to determine what is true, good, right, and beautiful for myself. But Jesus claiming supreme authority over all of life doesn't fit well with what, um, with kind of our infatuation with this, this idea that philosopher Charles Taylor refers to as expressive individualism. Expressive individualism is this term that, that Taylor has coined to kind of describe this modern tendency in particularly Western culture, but it's more pervasive around the world in many ways, but this tendency to, to find our own meaning by ascribing validation, objective validation to our subjective feelings and experiences and desires. That what we're saying is that my, my experiences, my desires, my feelings are really the basis upon which truth is determined. And, and this is kind of how we live our lives. This, this idea of expressive individualism basically places us at the center of the universe. And so in a culture of expressive individualism, there is no objective foundation below us upon which we build our lives upon, but neither is there an objective standard or ideal above us that is guiding us and leading us toward the good life. Instead, we are the centers of our universe. While we may not say that we are God, that we actually believe that we are divine, we functionally conduct our lives as such that we possess final authority in determining what is right, good, true, and beautiful for ourselves. And when you have multiple centers of the universe trying to live in harmony together, chaos ensues. And so part of why I think we see such division and polarization in our culture is because we've bought into this very pernicious and poisonous idea of expressive individualism, that I have the right to determine what is right, good, true, and beautiful, and when you have multiple centers of the universe com coming together, chaos ensues. In his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Dr. Carl Truman describes this kind of cultural moment we're in in these words. He says, modern ethical discourse is chaotic because there's no longer a strong community consensus on the nature of the proper ends of human existence. In other words, what he's saying is like, we can't even agree on how to live life and what is good, because there's no agreement upon what, what is really foundational to being human. I mean, we're, we're questioning what it, what it means, what marriage is, what, what gender is, what justice is, what, what race or racism is. We can't even agree on these things, and that's what produces the chaos around us. If morality is a function of the social conventions of the community, and yet the community lacks consensus on those social conventions, or those social conventions are hotly contested, Ethical chaos is the result. This is the world we live in. When we, when we reject the idea, when we laugh at the idea that there's a God who has ultimate authority over life, who is the objective standard of truth and justice and goodness, we find the absurdity of the world that we now inhabit and create. And so I think this is one of the most pervasive reasons why people actually walk away from the faith why they discount Jesus, why they uh, reject his claims altogether, not because, not because he claimed to perform miracles, although that's, that's an objection people have, not because he even claimed to be God, 
or that he claimed to rise from the dead. I believe we largely object to Jesus today in our culture because Jesus claims to be able to tell us what to do. I think that's why we push against Jesus. We like Jesus, he's interesting to us, he's helpful, he's a wonderful supplement to my life, but the moment he infringes upon my desires and preferences and ambitions, we part ways with Jesus. We push against Jesus because his authority starts to impede upon my desires to live and pursue my authentic self, which in our modern day, that is the modern day gospel, that the good news of our modern culture is to live your authentic self. And Jesus is committing our culture's greatest sin, which is telling us that we don't have the power to determine who or what we truly are. And we want that power for ourselves. We want to reserve the right to determine what is good and what is evil. In fact, when you go to the origin of human sin in the world, that's where it stems from. The first humans choosing to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not just a rebellious act against God. It is a way of saying, God, we are firing you from your position of defining and determining what is good and evil. We will now do that for ourselves. And that is the world we now inhabit. But it is a power that we would like to have for ourselves, but it is a power that we cannot wield. It is a power that when it is held by us, it ends up ruining us. For it is not a power that we were intended to hold, and we know it. But when we continue to live as though we are God, it brings about chaos around us. And it's actually expressed rather beautifully in the lyrics of a song, Wake Up, by Arcade Fire. Listen to this. If the children don't grow up, our bodies get bigger, but our hearts get torn up. We're just a million little gods causing rainstorms, turning every good thing to rust. I guess we'll just have to adjust. That, that, that encapsulates where we are in our culture. When each of us is our own God, so to speak, when each of us claims the right to determine what is good, true, and beautiful for ourselves, we end up turning good things into rust because we were never intended to have that kind of power. And instead of recognizing the absurdity of being the center of our own universe, instead of recognizing that, that we cannot bear the weight of determining what is truth for ourselves, we would rather stay in a world that produces rust and just figure out a way to adjust to it. I, I remember having a series of conversations with a, a dear friend of mine who's not a Christian, and he raised several questions and objections to the Christian faith. And over a series of, of conversations and time, I was actually able, to, we were able to like provide some satisfactory answers to his questions and objections. To the point where I was like, okay, like we kind of walked through the list. I was like, so now what? And I remember him very simply and honestly just saying, I just don't want to believe it. And it was just very interesting, and, and, I, and I don't want to like make a snide comment about my friend here, but like there is this realization that we're not actually after truth at times. That in these moments, if we're really honest, there's a part of us, maybe a larger part than we care to admit, there's a part of us that really doesn't want to discover what is true, good, and beautiful. We want to determine what is true, good, and beautiful. I'm going to say that again. We often don't simply want to discover what is true, good, and beautiful. We want to determine what is true, good, and beautiful. And when that becomes our posture, chaos ensues in us and around us. And this is why the question of who does Jesus say that he is, is of first importance. It's why this question is more important than even us answering the question, who do you say that Jesus is? 
The answer to the question, who do you say that Jesus is, must be subservient to the question of who he says he is. And so who does Jesus say that he is? He tells us he is the Son of God. He is the Son of God, the Father. But he also says that he is the judge of the earth. Now, this is really where people start to part ways with Jesus. Once you start talking about judgment and condemnation and this idea that we are judged by our our moral or immoral behaviors, this is where people part ways with Jesus. But it's repeated several times by Jesus in this text. Verse 22, the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. And, And in case the people in the back didn't hear it, Jesus doubles down in verse 27, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. And he repeats it again at the end in verse 29. Now, it's a very common view, particularly in the West, to, to hear this idea of a God who judges, a God of judgment. We, we, we tend to see that as very laughable, as primitive, as cruel, which is actually very telling of how, of how culturally naive and self-centered we are because really this idea of, of criticizing the, uh, a God of judgment, it's a very Western perspective. In most parts of the world, the idea of a God of judgment is unquestioned. But the idea of a God of mercy, that is what's implausible. But, but in our Western context, the idea of a God who judges, just it doesn't seem to resonate with our own sensibilities. It seems primitive and cruel. We, we don't even hold to the claim of the late rapper Tupac, only God can judge me. We, like, we, we don't even allow God to judge us. We reserve that right to determine if we have erred or not. And so to our modern sensibilities, the notion of a God who stands over us and judges us is absurd, precisely because we have placed ourselves at the center of the universe. And again, perhaps not to the degree that we actually believe we are divine, but at least functionally to the degree that we believe that no one can tell us what to do. We don't care who Jesus says he is, because not even God can judge us. And so with that said, we have to understand this idea of critiquing the idea of a God who judges. That's a very Western perspective. And there are several parts of the world where the idea of a God who judges, like I said, is unquestioned. But a God of mercy is much harder to embrace. Many many of you know that we partner with the Shira Diocese in Rwanda. And uh, Bishop Sam Mugisha, who leads the Shira Diocese, is a good friend of Christ's community. And he was with us a few years ago, and he shared his testimony. And as someone who lost loved ones during the uh, Rwandan genocide in the mid-90s, Bishop Sam, I mean, he wasn't a bishop at the time, but he struggled with his belief in God, as you can imagine. But it was precisely Sam's deep grasp of God's mercy and justice that brought him into a saving faith in Christ Jesus. And, 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 and hear me, this is so important that it was both of these things together. It wasn't until Sam asked the question, who does Jesus say that he is, that led him to a saving faith in Christ. And it was an understanding that Jesus is full of mercy as well as full of judgment, and the two go hand in hand. And so who does Jesus say that he is? He says he is the Son of God the Father and the judge of all the earth. And so just think about this for a second. How can we look at things around the world like the Rwandan genocide or the war in Ukraine and, and just kind of write off or laugh off the idea of a God of judgment? How can we even look at the evils in our own country and in our own time and, and consider that, that, God, 
that there could not be a God of judgment. How can we look at evils like abortion on demand, historic and systemic racism, the pernicious sex industry that just erodes not just morality, but human bodies and lives? How can we look at these things and laugh off the idea that there is a God who will bring justice to all evil and sin in the world? Far from taking offense at the idea that Jesus is a judge, y'all, we should take comfort in that truth. We should take comfort in the fact that there is a promise that all evils and wrongs will be righted by the holy love of Jesus, the judge of all the earth. To laugh off who Jesus says he is as a judge is a privilege granted to those who know not the depths of evil and injustice. To claim that God cannot judge, that, that comes from a posture that does not fully understand the depths of evil and injustice. In fact, Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf said it so well in his book, Exclusion Embrace. Listen to this. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of God who refuses to judge. And he goes on to say, in a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea that God doesn't judge, it will invariably die. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not, take, it did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. Church, we ought to pray to God and hope with every fiber of our being that Jesus is indeed the Son of God the Father, but also the judge, the holy judge of the earth. We ought to believe and hope and delight in the fact that Jesus is who he says he is. Because if he is not, then we are profoundly and utterly hopeless and lost. But if what Jesus says about himself is true, if what he declares about himself, particularly in verses 23 through 24, if what he says is true of himself, then we ought to respond properly. Listen to what Jesus says in verses 23 and 24. That all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Jesus is calling us to honor him. And if he were just a man, if he were just a good teacher, this would be a self-centered, egotistical move. But if he is the Son of God, worthy of all glory and honor as the Father, then it is right for us to ascribe honor to him as we do the Father. Because he is in fact God. Because he is the authoritative son, the righteous judge, and the giver of eternal life, and he is worthy of all honor and glory. Amen? And so if this is not who Jesus is, if we are parting with Jesus from this point, you have to understand that you, you, are, not, you are not following Jesus. It's not Jesus you're listening to. But as Jesus tells us who he is, it summons and it demands a response. And so what I want to suggest for the, re the remainder of our time, just three quick ways that we can honor and respond to Jesus for who he says he is. The first is this. We need to consider his claims. And, and this may be a little bit more applicable to those who are more skeptical or just not sure what they believe about Jesus, but we need to consider his claims. If you are skeptical about the Christian faith, one, I'm, I'm glad you're here. But what I'm not asking you to do, I'm not asking you to suspend your criticisms or your doubts or your questions, nor am I asking you to leave them at the door when you enter into this space. But what I am asking all of us to do 
is to start with the question, who does Jesus say that he is? Not who do I think he is, what do others say about him, who does he say that he is? If you are not sure what you think about Jesus, then consider letting Jesus tell you about Jesus. Consider his claims. Have you actually explored them? It's, I mean, in my experience, so often, the reason why people walk away from Jesus, they're actually walking away from a caricature of him. They're walking away from some version that they have heard, some diluted or distorted version portrayed by other people. And so if you're going to reject Jesus, make sure it is Jesus that you're rejecting. And so one, one tool that we've used here at Christ Community are, are called Discovery Bible Groups. Uh, if you're interested in kind of exploring who Jesus is, considering his claims, we'd love for you to uh, participate, join in a Discovery Bible Group. Uh, it's a very safe and non-threatening way to do so. If you're interested, we have a sign-up uh, at our welcome table. Stop by the service. We'd love for you to be a part of that. Uh, if you or someone you know would like to be a part of that, that's also a great next step. These are different from our community groups, to be clear. But if you're interested in considering the claims of Jesus, we encourage you to start there. So second, listen to his word. And this is a response for all of us, whether you're a Christian or not. Whether you, whether you believe in Jesus or not, whether you have questions about it, I encourage you to read the scriptures, to listen to what Jesus says. In some ways, this is just a more tangible uh, practice of the first step of consider his claims, but maybe start with the Gospel of John. Go back and start with John chapter 1 and read through the scriptures, listen to what Jesus says about himself, or if you're interested, sign up for, we have something called the form.life, that is our daily pathway of spiritual formation where we have opportunities to engage the scriptures, practice spiritual disciplines, it's a way for us to listen to God's word. But again, this is, this is applicable to Christians and non-Christians, because I know for my, myself, I have a tendency to make Jesus' voice sound a lot like mine. That Jesus has a Midwestern accent sometimes, you know? Like, I tend to kind of think that Jesus agrees with everything that I agree with. And so, as a Christian, it's important for us to regularly refine our understanding of who Jesus is. So, recently, I went to the eye doctor, and my prescription didn't change very much. But, but if, if, I, if I never went to the eye doctor, and these small, subtle prescription changes, that they went unchecked, over a period of time, I would have a distorted vision. In the same way as followers of Jesus, we need to be regularly asking ourselves the question, who does Jesus say that he is, and am I still following Jesus? Am I still listening to Jesus? Or have I been for, have I, has Jesus' voice been co-opted by some other voice in our culture? So listen to his word, but lastly, enter the life he offers. If we are going to let Jesus tell us who he says he is, and if we're going to seriously consider what it means to pursue him, to know him, to follow him, then part of what that means is that we must take seriously his invitation to follow him out of death into life. That's part of what it means to follow and to know Jesus. Listen to what he says in verses 25 to 26. Truly, truly I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Friends, the reason we take the words of Jesus seriously is because we believe that he is the only one who possesses power over life and death. We take Jesus' words seriously not because they are helpful, not because they provide a moral framework for our lives, but because he has the power over life and death. For there is no other power, there is no other authority who has faced death, entered death, and defeated death other than the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? 
And so as we gather this day, I know it's not Easter yet, but we're, I'm preaching here, but we gather Sunday after Sunday to remember and celebrate the resurrection of Christ Jesus. We don't do that one time a year, but we remember the fact that Jesus is not just the giver of good wisdom, he is the giver of life, the defeater of death, the judge of the world, and the son of God. And so as we consider his claims, as we listen to his word, the natural flow of that is to lead us to respond to his invitation, to enter the life that he offers in his kingdom now and forever, because God the Father, through the power of God the Holy Spirit, has granted God the Son the authority and the power to speak truth, to judge sin, and to bring life from death. And by his grace, he offers us that life to us now by means of repentance and by pledging our allegiance to him in faith as the Son of God, the judge of the earth, the giver of life, and the king of kings. And so friends, who do you say that Jesus is? My prayer is that you would answer that question by by saying who he says he is. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we recognize that we come to you first and foremost because you have come to us. As we sang so beautifully together, that we love you because we have first been loved by you. Lord, I ask that in this time you would, by the power of your spirit, convict us of the ways in which we do functionally, whether implicitly or explicitly, the way we functionally live as though we are God, where we hold the right to, to determine what is right, true, good, and beautiful for ourselves. Lord, would you deliver us from the immensity and the absurdity of that task that just ends up ruining us and turning every good thing to rust? Lord, I ask that you would show us the beauty and the glory of the Lord Jesus, the one who has come to be the giver of life, the judge of all sin and evil, the one who has come to defeat death, and may we give our lives to him fully. And so, Lord, would you now in this time awaken us to that truth, and may we respond to Jesus and hear who he says he is and respond as such. And so, Lord, draw those who are in death and darkness into life and light so that you might be glorified, your church might be edified, and your mission might move forth to the ends of the earth. We pray this in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen.